ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولاهما بعد uh, welcome back to another Q&A uh, and today inshallah we have a number of questions as usual from around the globe that are uh, pertinent once again the email to send the questions to is askyq askyq at epic masjid one word epic e-p-i-c masjid.org and once again uh, for the record I choose from hundreds of questions those questions that I think are going to be the maximum uh, benefit and I reiterate that I cannot answer individual emails uh, so please don't send me specific uh, you know questions especially about marriage and divorce uh, that requires specific fatwas we talk about generic issues that lots of people benefit from so we begin our first question for today uh, brother Satak from Indonesia emails and asks about the ruling of nutmeg in Islam because he says that he uses it regularly in his cuisine and spices and yet he just heard a fatwa that says that it is haram so uh, this is a, a spicy uh, question inshallah pun intended uh, nutmeg is of course the name given to the seed of a particular uh, plant it's uh, its biological name is and I'm going to butcher the name here uh, Mristicia fragrance uh, which is mainly harvested in Indonesia Indonesia is the largest exporter of nutmeg and so our brother uh, Satak is emailing from Indonesia and of course it's also produced in, uh, in, in India to a lesser degree and other places and it is used as a spice uh, or a flavoring in many many cultures and in particular the Southeast and Southeast Asian cultures so India Pakistan Bangladesh Bhutan Nepal and of course uh, Indonesia Malaysia especially in these but also even in the Western cultures even there's a famous drink here uh, that, that uh, is done in Western lands that involves nutmeg and whatnot so uh, it's a very common uh, uh, spice here uh, and uh, this uh, the the term for nutmeg in Arabic is and is also called Josel Hind as well ascribed to India uh, even though it does not typically originate from India meaning it's not the main source however uh, in the good old days uh, spices would go through India and then reach the silk route and so uh, nutmeg in particular it would yes it would be grown in India but it would be brought from Indonesia and other places and then it would be spread and so it was called Josel Hind uh, basically the the the, the 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 seed coming from Hind and also by the way just FYI uh, according to many historians, nutmeg was one of the main factors that Europeans wanted to discover the direct route to India. So Christopher Columbus, his journey was because of nutmeg. Well, nutmeg and spice and um, uh, nutmeg and also uh, pepper and salt. They wanted uh, direct access. So nutmeg actually played a very big role in uh, the uh, the incentive for Europeans to try to discover as they call the the new world anyway that's all about uh, the, the 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 spice of, of a nutmeg now what is the problem why would why would our brother ask what the issue of nutmeg well uh, the 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 fruit or the the seed of nutmeg it's not a fruit it's a seed the seed of nutmeg it has a compound called myristicine and this compound uh, if it is ingested in a particular uh, concentration and in its pure form it can produce 
uh, effects that are hallucinogenic, i.e. the same types of effects that happens when you drink uh, alcohol, uh, when you drink khamar, wine or, or whatnot, or uh, if you take some types of drugs or whatnot. So this uh, seed, if it is ground and ingested in a particular manner with a particular purity in a particular concentration, it can produce hallucinogenic effects. However, if it is used as a regular spice, if it is cooked in a small quantity and mixed with food and used in, in, in the regular uh, cuisines around the globe, then in fact it produces a very nice flavor, which any of us who have eaten, and I myself have eaten that plenty of times obviously, uh, that we are very familiar with. And these types of food items, no matter how much you eat that food item, whether it is a drink, whether it is a spice, whether it is a curry, that if you were to eat that or drink uh, the substance in large quantities, nothing would happen because it is used as a spice. And so therefore, you have the same substance. One aspect of it is primary usage is for spices. And it's a very nice spice and it is a international spice. And it is also possible to derive from the same substance something which is without a shadow of a doubt haram because it is hallucinogenic. And there are people, and there are cultures even, but it's very, very rare, uh, that uh, use nutmeg to produce that hallucinogenic effect. And it is something that is very, um, uh, it is done uh, in acts of desperation when people don't have access to actual, let's say the hardcore drugs, or they don't have access to alcohol, and they do have access to nutmeg, and they are addicted, and they need to get that high. So there are ways to do it. Again, it's not something, no need to teach you all of this, and not that I'm an expert, alhamdulillah. But my point is that there are ways to uh, use the same substance to produce that hallucinogenic effect. So therefore, what will the ruling be? So this topic or this issue of nutmeg, it is not something new. It is something that has been discussed since the very beginning of its discovery uh, amongst the Arab and the Muslim populations. And therefore, uh, we do have a number of early ulama, medieval ulama actually, not early because again, the, by the time this, uh, so I classify ulama into you know, early and medieval and pre-modern and modern, there's four, four you know, large categories you can say. So uh, the ulama of the earliest phases, but generally speaking, nutmeg hadn't reached Arabian lands at that time. However, however, we do find discussions of this uh, Joseph al-Tlib or Joseph al-Hind, it is called. We do find fatawa uh, from ulama from more than a thousand years ago. And it is true to state that quite a lot of them did view nutmeg to be in the same category as those substances that cause iskar, that cause sukkar, uh, uh, or which is basically intoxication. And so they lumped it together with alcohol. And therefore, to be precise, therefore, the question of nutmeg actually is a very interesting discussion about the types of substances uh, according to the classification of the Sharia when it comes to haram or halal. And if you were to consider anything that intoxicates, no matter how uh, it is, whether it's liquid or solid, and whether it is uh, you know, ingested in small quantities, it becomes a spice. If you were not to not care about any of this, and you were to consider all such substances to be khamr, then you would apply the ruling of khamr to nutmeg. What is the ruling of alcohol? What is the ruling of vodka, of wine? What is the ruling of gin, of beer? Our Prophet wasallam said, ما أسكر كثيره فقليله حرام. That which intoxicates in large quantities will be haram in small quantities. Now, this is the ruling that is given to alcoholic drinks. 
And therefore, if you know five, ten glasses of beer intoxicates an average person, then one drop of beer to add to your to food for the to, for the sake of that you know beer, it would be considered haram. And this is the fatwa of quite a number of ulama. And in fact, even if you log on online in Arabic or English fatwa, you will come across a number of ulama that have said nutmeg is haram based upon this principle. And this is not a strange or unique or bizarre fatwa. This is a mainstream traditional fatwa, and there's nothing wrong with this fatwa. And one of the great scholars of our uh, medieval tradition, Ibn Hajar al-Haythami, who died 974 Hijrah, so uh, uh, 600 years ago, uh, 500 something years ago, he was asked about nutmeg. Uh, and uh, he said that the scholars of Mecca and Medina and the scholars of Egypt have differed over nutmeg. So this is a now a controversy taking place. So the controversy is now taking place. This is now the time that nutmeg is spreading in, in Muslim lands. And so you have various groups of ulama. So groups are allowing it, groups are not allowing it. And then he himself said uh, that I like to follow Ibn Taqiq al-Eid's fatwa, which is another great Shafi'i scholar, who said that it is muskira. It is the same ruling as alcohol, and another great scholar, Ibn al-Imad, he said that just like hashish, just like, you know, uh, the drug hashish, it is haram, so too nutmeg is going to be haram. And he then quoted the hadith, kullu muskirin uh, khamr wa kullu khamrin haram. Anything that intoxicates will be called a khamr, and every khamr is haram. So this is the fatwa of Ibn Daqiq al-Eid, and of Ibn al-Imad, and of Ibn Hajar al-Haythami. Uh, this is not, by the way, the Ibn Hajar uh, al Hafiz al-Asqalani who commented on Tilbari. This is another Ibn Hajar who's called Ibn Hajar al-Haythami. There's two famous Ibn Hajars. Uh, there's a hundred years between them. So the point being, you do have that fatwa and you find it online. No problem. Is this the only fatwa? No. There are a number of other ulama who looked into this deeply. And they said, and this is the key point here, that nutmeg does not fall under uh, muskir. It doesn't come under that which is intoxicating. Rather, it comes under something else called mukhaddir, or they say mufattir, or they say mufsid. So there are, uh, and again, this is a much more advanced topic. I'm not going to go into all of this. Some ulama categorize such substances into one. That's muskir. Others say, no, there's two. Others say three. Others say four. So here's the point. How do you categorize all of these substances, that will then make your distinction uh, of the fatwas, that not all of these substances are the same. And a, a number of great ulama said that these types of substances that are used as spices in some uh, some uh, areas and perhaps as uh, as types of drugs and others, they cannot take the ruling of the muskir, especially because they are uh, uh, not something that uh, the Sharia has come explicitly forbidding. So we look at other factors as well. The Sharia has forbidden khamr, and khamr is a type of drink that has alcohol in it. As for mukhaddir, then that the mukhaddir is typically a solid substance that affects the body by bringing about a sense of lethargy or also sometimes uh, bringing about ecstasy. As for uh, mufattir, uh, this is something that brings about, uh, generally speaking, a type of sleepiness or even a mufsid is that which basically knocks you unconscious. And according to another group of scholars, uh, amongst them is the famous Imam al-Ramli and uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the Maliki scholar al-Qarafi in his book al-Furuq, uh, which is a very encyclopedic book that he talks about 
about the differences between that which might be considered the same. He goes, no, there are actually differences. So he says difference number 40 is between uh, the muskirat and the mukhaddirat. He goes, these are not the same categories. And he says that, uh, in, uh, that those substances in which there is a need to use them, not for pleasure, but for some medicinal purposes, let's say, okay? And the, the body finds a healing mechanism through them, do not take the same uh, verdict as alcohol. And he gives a number of examples. And he also, and the, this fatwa, by the way, is not something new. Imam al-Ramli uh, was asked about uh, nutmeg, and he uh, wrote a fatwa in his famous book, Al-Fatawa, in which he said that, it is allowed to ingest nutmeg if it is done in small quantities. However, if it is done in large quantities, then it becomes haram. Why, why is this distinction made? This distinction is made uh, because the concept of mukhaddir is not the same as that of muskir. And the reason for this is the following, that there are many differences between the mukhaddir category and the muskir category. For example, the punishment for drinking alcohol, which is the, the, the lashes in the sharia, will not be applied to somebody who takes, uh, for example, nutmeg. This not, it's not the same punishment if, for the sake of high, I'm saying if he takes uh, it for the sake of becoming high, that punishment will not apply. As well, the issue of najasa, nutmeg is not najis. However, according to many scholars, uh, khamar is najis. Now again, uh, the position that I hold is that Khamud is not Najis, and we talked about them maybe another lecture. I know I gave a longer lecture about this, but the point is they distinguish between Mukhaddir and Muskir. And they said Mukhaddir is not Najis, whereas Muskir is uh, Najis. And uh, other punishments as well uh, that differ between Mukhaddir and Muskir. So the point being, what this group of scholars said is the following. They said, those substances that are solid and that do affect the body, we look at the goal and the purpose of those substances. If it is done for the sake of the same high, the same you know hallucinogenic effects that khamr uh, produces, then it is haram. However, if it is done for medicinal purposes, or if it is done for a spice and it does not have the hallucinogenic effects, then in this case, this group of scholars argues that the mukhaddir does not take the ruling of the uh, muskir. And this is the fatwa that I personally uh, follow because it is the common sense uh, and it is the logical one. And it is one that uh, confirms with the goals of the sharia. And I'll give you some simple examples. So uh, what do we do when we need to take a substance to numb a part of the body for an operation? What do we do when we need to knock ourselves out uh, for an operation? You know, the, the person will give us that substance and it is, of course, uh, you know, sometimes it could be a liquid, sometimes it could be, uh, you know, uh, inhaled or whatnot. Now, these types of substances affect the mind. These types of, so morphine is a good example, right? What do you do when somebody is in pain and he has to be given morphine? And morphine does have a type of ecstatic effect. However, that's not the primary goal. That's not the intention. The intention is to numb the the pain. The same goes for those things that analgesics, for example, or those things that will cause us to go to sleep for the sake of an operation. Generally speaking, we are not allowed to ingest or inhale substances that are going to interfere with our minds. Yet it is allowed before an operation 
to, you know, uh, knock a person out and to ingest or to inhale or to put this uh, liquid into the person's body. Why? Because this is not of the muskirat. It is not taken for pleasure. It's not taken to produce a high. It's not taken to escape from the problems of this world. It's be because that's what people do when they want to get drunk. They want to escape from the problems of, the, of this world and they want to produce this temporary high that causes them to feel that ecstasy, that euphoria, that hallucinogenic effects, they're daydreaming and they're in a, uh, uh, you know, a type of phase or whatnot. That type of, of, of pleasurable ecstasy, which serves no purpose and it harms the body and the soul, it is haram in all circumstances. However, what if the substance is taken for, for another purpose and not for that ecstatic purpose? Now, if the substance is khamr, there is no leeway because the sharia has come with khamr, uh, forbidding khamr, and the hadith forbids khamr. And our Prophet said, it is not a cure, it is the disease itself. There is no cure in khamr itself. You don't drink vodka or gin or beer or wine for any medicinal purposes. And one drop added to your food will make it haram. Does nutmeg take the same ruling? Some group of scholars says, yes, it does. And another group says, no, it doesn't. And they said, those who ingest nutmeg in those quantities, because it, it requires a much larger quantity. So FYI, uh, uh, many cultures use nutmeg, as I said, it's something that is done around the globe. And none of the, you know, items, the food and drink items that are consumed around the globe, when they are produced properly, none of them causes any effects. There's no hallucinogenic effects. I mean, children eat these food items and, you know, adults and pregnant ladies and elderly people, they eat and drink from these nutmeg products and nothing happens. In fact, I guarantee you many of you watching this YouTube video right now are actually shocked to discover that nutmeg is a hallucinogenic uh, substance. It can be used as one. It's not the primary purpose. And the majority of people who have it in their shells don't even know that it is potentially hallucinogenic. Because the, when you buy it from this, the stores, by the way, it's actually diluted and it's something that, you know, uh, you really have to go a little bit crazy and overboard to, to, to become hallucinogenic off of the product that that you buy. If you wanted to do do that, you would get the actual nut and you would ground it in a particular manner, particular concentration. Those people who know, know. And the, 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 the end product that we buy from the market is actually very different and it is very difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, it's very difficult to use that substance to become high. And therefore, uh, and, and, and also by the way, those who are, uh, you know, wanting to go down that route, they don't use nutmeg because there are so many other substances that are easier, uh, accessible, uh, and do the job better. Nutmeg is only done, you know, for by those people who are so desperate and they don't have any other alternative and they figure out how to do it. Otherwise, it is not something that is resorted to. Therefore, the bottom line, there is a, a good position, a solid position that considers nutmeg to be the same ruling as alcohol. And so they would say that the small and the large of it is haram, and that is a respectable position, it is backed by the generalities of the concept of muskir and the qiyas or the analogy of nutmeg being the same category as the muskirat or as the alcoholic drinks. However, there is another position which is also mainstream and it is also, you know, early Islam, or sorry, medieval Islam and it is also something that our earlier uh, scholars of 500 years ago discussed and 
I would say the majority of uh, researchers who understand food and medicine and modern science uh, in our times, the majority of scholars who have a chemical background uh, seem to sympathize with the fatwa that nutmeg is not the same as alcohol. And I'll give you a number of examples. So there was uh, a very uh, well attended, very large conference that took place uh, uh, in uh, Kuwait uh, 20 years ago in 1995 uh, that was done under the organization of the Islamic Conference, one of the largest uh, fiqh councils of the world, the Nadwa, the Fiqhiya, um, the, the medical uh, Nadwa Fiqhiya, uh, the Eighth Council, and they discussed a number of uh, things, and they said the Mukhaddir, uh, the Mukhaddir, generally speaking, are haram, except if it is done for medicinal purposes, for a need, and for the level that is needed. Uh, in other words, there's got to be a need, and the level has to be appropriate for what you are uh, doing. And then in the same fatwa, they said, and there is no sin on using Joseph Tatib, which is nutmeg, uh, in order to uh, affect the flavoring of the food if it is done in small quantities, as long as that quantity does not bring about a sense of euphoria or ecstasy or induce hallucinogenic uh, effects. And fatwa. So this is a fatwa from the one of the largest fiqh councils of the world. And generally speaking, these fiqh councils, they bring experts and specialists and they bring people who know uh, these uh, matters better than uh, because again there is an element of chemistry that is involved there's an element of fully understanding the realities of of these substances and of course uh, because of this we do have this this you know debate or controversy on so many issues between uh, generic scholars who you know they have a good understanding of the Sharia but maybe not fully aware of the specifics of what they're talking about versus those who have other specialities uh, another great scholar uh, who is uh, a member of the International Union of Muslim Scholars, one of the largest fiqh councils of the world. He is actually the president currently, Dr. Ali uh, Muhyiddin uh, Al-Qurradaghi, very great alim, and also one of the senior ulama. He actually has taken over from Sheikh Al-Qardawi, uh, the, the fiqh council. And uh, he has a fatwa as well about nutmeg. And he says that the usage of nutmeg is permissible if it does not lead to uh, a state of ecstasy or euphoria and it is used in a small quantity for food in order to bring about the uh, taste. However, if it is done for other than this, if it is done for uh, euphoria or ecstasy, then it is not going to be permissible." End quote. And the great scholar Sheikh Wahba Al-Zuhaili, who has written uh, many, many, many volumes of fiqh, and his most famous uh, work, Al-Fiqh uh, Al-Islami Wa Dillatu, which is a multi-volume work, which goes over all of the issues of fiqh in a very contemporary manner, and it is an encyclopedic reference for every single student of knowledge. I use this book also a lot, all the time. Sheikh Wahba Al-Zuhaili gave a fatwa about this, that لا مانع من استعمال القليل من جوزة الطيب لإصلاح الطعام والكعك ونحوه ويحرم الكثير لأنها مخدرة. There is no problem in using a small quantity of nutmeg to bring about a change in the flavor of a food or a cake or anything of this nature, and it is not allowed to ingest a large quantity because it will become a mukhaddir. So Dr. Wahba Zuhaili and the Fiqh Council and Dr. Ali Muhyiddin Al-Qurradaghi and before them Sheikh Al-Ramli and before them Al-Qarrafi and all of them, they basically said that nutmeg is not the same as alcohol. And the same goes for many other substances uh, that come under this category 
that they do have a purpose that is not hallucinogenic, that is not meant to induce a euphoria, and that purpose is halal. It could be medicine or it could be flavoring. As long as it does not produce that effect, then it is permissible to use in that realm. Uh, it is not take the, the ruling of uh, of uh, khamr. And this is also the fatwa of the Darul Ifta of Egypt, which is uh, one of the senior, in fact, it is the senior fiqh council of Egypt, composed of many ulama of the uh, Al-Azhar University in particular. And so the official fatwa of the Darul Ifta is that nutmeg is allowed in small quantities for cooking. And this is also the fatwa of the Fatwa Council of Jordan as well, that they too have given a fatwa in this regard. Now, again, as we are aware, usually that's why we ask these questions, you know, generally speaking, the questions I do uh, would have some, you know, back and forth. Otherwise, if somebody, if something has been unanimously agreed upon, generally speaking, there's no question about this. So our brother was using nutmeg and he came across a fatwa that says it is haram. So this confused him. And I conclude by stating that is a legitimate and valid fatwa. We respect the ulama who said that and there's no problem to follow that fatwa. However, there are many ulama, dare I say, that in our times, those who understand the science of you know uh, these products and those who understand the chemical nature of food products and of uh, herbal uh, substances generally speaking we find that they do not agree with this somewhat simplistic notion of viewing all food categories that might potentially affect the mind to be the same as the category of khamar or alcohol. No, khamar is a category, and so the muskir, uh, is a, which is a liquid intoxicants uh, that have alcohol, is in one category, and mukhaddir is another category, and we can even say mufattir is yet a third category. There should be at least three categories if you ask me, but anyway, that is a more longer topic. In a uh, nutshell, uh, uh, pun intended, uh, inshallah ta'ala, uh, nutmeg is halal when it is used uh, for the sake of your uh, spices and your food. And if somebody uses it for other than that and to produce hallucinogenic effects, then there is no question that it would become haram and it would take the ruling of uh, all other types of drugs that are taken for hallucinogenic effects and for ecstasy and the sin would be upon that person that does not negate the fact that it is permissible to use nutmeg for halal and that is the default of what mankind uses it for and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Our second question for today, um, interesting one, and I actually chose this one uh, for a reason, I'll get to it. So hear me out here. Uh, Brother Ayaz from India emails uh, that there is a hadith that uh, he has read and its meaning has confused him. And uh, he emails saying, can you explain this hadith? He says that uh, the hadith is that the Prophet Sallallahu said that of the rights of the husband over the wife is that, and I quote the hadith, she does not allow anyone to walk over his bed that he does not like, end quote. He does not allow, uh, that she does not allow anyone to walk over his bed that he does not like, end quote. He is asking, what does it mean to walk over the bed? And also this condition, which is what really confused him, that he does not like, because he is saying that why would that condition be there? Because the implication would be, a'udhu billah, that if the husband did not mind, then this would be allowed. So he's asking this uh, question. Now, uh, the response to this, I actually chose this question not just because of this one hadith, because actually there's many such texts and many such 
you know, uh, uh, translations that I could bring it up. But I wanted to choose this question to uh, bring, a, to underscore a different point, And that is that it is very, very uh, risky to read the translations of Quran and Sunnah and then to derive or attempt to derive fiqh rulings or fiqh understandings from them. Frankly, it is also risky to read the Arabic if you know Arabic, but you don't know, uh, you know the rules of fiqh and the rules of usul al-fiqh because you wouldn't understand uh, some of these, uh, some of these uh, problems. So this is a classical problem, not just of translation, but in fact, so there's one translation problem, and then there's also another problem of usul al-fiqh, which we're going to uh, come to. As for uh, the translation problem, so the translation problem is that this translator has taken a phrase that is meant to be figurative and translated it literally into English. And the hadith is an authentic hadith. It's in Abu Dawood in Tirmidhi and Nisa'i in the Muslim Imam Ahmad. It's also, by the way, a part of the khutbatul wada'. So this is a very important phrase. The Prophet said this in front of the largest group ever in his life, maybe a hundred thousand people, he said this. And the Arabic phrase is uh, that he's talking about the rights of the wife over the husband and the rights of the husband over the wife. And he says of the rights of the wife, uh, of the husband over the wife, that he has this right that over his wife, that As for the right that your wives have, that the husbands have over the wives, that the wives do not allow, then this translator translates this as, to walk over your bed. And you know, this is an actually valid, literal translation. To walk over, wata'a means to walk over. Uh, so the muatta, the famous book, is to, the, the book that has been well-traveled. So, to walk over your beds. Now, obviously, obviously, this is a metaphor for intimacy. It's a metaphor for inviting somebody into the bed. And so the point is that the rights that of the rights that uh, the, the husbands have over the wives is to guard their modesty and to guard their personal chastity and to not go and, and, and audhu billah go to other men. That is not something that is allowed. And so a figurative speech is used and that is that do not allow another person to walk on your bed. So this is a figure of speech that means intimacy. Like we say in the English language that so-and-so was caught red-handed. It doesn't mean his hand was red. And if this phrase were to be translated into another language, it would in fact be a mistake to translate red-handed as literally red-handed. No, you should say he was caught in the act. You should say that he was caught, you know, doing the deed. Whatever is the, the, the figurative meaning needs to be translated, not the literal uh, meaning. And this is the same that should, goes for any translation of Arabic. So, yuti'na furushakum should have been translated as, uh, you know, uh, to allow uh, intimacy, that this would have been a, better, been a better translation. And so this is the first problem, that the translation was done literally, so the brother was like, well, I guess he figured out that it meant intimacy, but he's like, what does it mean to walk over the bed? But then he brought about the more you know interesting point, and that is that, man takrahun, that somebody whom you don't like, does this mean, a'udhu billah, a'udhu billah, that 
if he doesn't mind, a'udhu billah, this is a disgusting, yani, you know, probability, but does this mean? That was the question that our brother asked, like, why is this condition put there? Because the implication is that if that condition is not met, then the act might be a'udhu billah permissible. And this is yet another uh, misunderstanding, which is why I said it's so important that we look at the text of the Quran and Sunnah with knowledge, because when we don't have knowledge and we don't have the necessary tools, it is very easy to misunderstand or to derive rulings that are absolutely uh, wrong. And so, uh, the the notion of uh, the notion of mantakrahun, this phrase, those whom you don't like, it is not a conditional clause such that if this condition is met or not met, then it will affect the thing before it. Rather, it is a description. And sometimes a description occurs in the Arabic language in the form of a conditional clause, but it is not meant as a conditional clause. So I'll give you an example in the Quran that will help clarify insha'Allah ta'ala. And that is that Allah Azza wa says in the Quran that in a long list of those who you, whom you're not allowed to marry, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that uh, you cannot marry uh, you know, uh, the, the, the mothers of, of your wives, okay? So you cannot marry the mothers of your wives, so your mother-in-law. And وَرَبَائِبُكُمْ وَاللَّاتِي فِي حُجُورِكُمْ And the Rabaib uh, are the daughters of your wives who live in your houses. Okay, so the Quran forbids that وَأُمَّهَاتُ نِسَائِكُمْ The mothers of your wives. So once you marry a lady, okay, her mother becomes haram. Your mother-in-law is haram for you. Can never marry your mother-in-law, okay? Even if you divorce your wife uh, and the the idda is finished, your mother-in-law remains forbidden permanently for you. Now, then Allah says, وَرَبَائِبُكُمْ أَلَّاتِي فِي حُجُورِكُمْ And your, the, the daughters of your wives who live in your houses. Now, why does Allah say who live in your houses? Does this mean that when you marry a lady and you live with her, but she happened to be married to another man and he kept the daughters from that marriage? So if this lady you end up divorcing, are you allowed to marry her daughters from another marriage? And these are your stepdaughters? No, by unanimous consensus of all of the scholars of Islam, all of the four schools of Islamic law, all of the ulama of this, this uh, tafsir and fiqh, they say this clause is meant to underscore how could you marry this uh, girl who was raised in your house and you are married to her mother. She has a status that, okay, she's not your biological daughter, but she takes on a status. So Allah brings a clause and that clause is not needed for the mother-in-law uh, because generally speaking, uh, there might be that once a divorce takes place and this lady might have a daughter from another uh, husband in Jahiliyyah, this would have been happening in the pre-Islamic time. Uh, if that divorce took place, a man would marry the daughter of his ex-wife who was from another husband, okay? And that was allowed in Jahiliyyah. Now the Quran came and said, no, you cannot marry the daughter of your wife. Then Allah says, who lives in your house. Now, does this mean if the daughter of your wife did not live in your house, you could marry her if you, if, if you, uh, if you divorced your wife? No, that is not allowed. If you lived with your woman, your wife, and uh, she was your, your, you know, your wife, even if she passes away or divorce happens and her daughters lived in another land. 
those, and you never met them until after the, the divorce or after she passed away, those daughters would be permanently haram for you, permanently haram. So why does Allah say, uh, uh, to underscore that there is a responsibility, there is a relationship, and it is not a condition, it is a description. Okay, so the point here, when our Prophet wasallam said that, no, uh, uh, that uh, uh, the right of the wife that she has, the right of the husband over the wife, is that she, and remember, by the way, I mean, this hadith also look at the context that uh, it was very common uh, back then, up until recently, and still it is common in many, you know, cultures, especially in those, you know, places where uh, the economic situation might not be so, you know, uh, powerful or whatnot, that husbands might have to leave for long periods of time. And uh, it is possible, therefore, that these types of circumstances are created where haram can take place. And so our Prophet ﷺ said, this is the haq that the wife has, the husband has over the wife, that even in his absence, and he is gone for a few months, you know, earning and, and doing whatever and, and sending the money back, that even in his absence, she has to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, he does have to do the same as well. And she should not allow any man uh, in her bed, uh, because that is something that he would not like. Not someone whom he would not like, because that is something that nobody likes. This is how the hadith is intended. Okay, so when you're going to get literal and you're going to translate according to the translation that our brother sends me, uh, which is that uh, you do not allow a man to walk over uh, your bed uh, if you don't like him. So then our brother is doubly confused. Like, what does it mean walk over the bed? I guess he understood that big. And then he goes, if you don't like this man, then it's not allowed. And as I explained that the reason I chose this question is not just because of this hadith. It's an interesting hadith to explain, but the point is broader than this. And that is the reality uh, to underscore that it is imperative that when you open up books of the Quran and Sunnah, when you open up these classical references, that you have some background to derive fiqh. If you don't have that background, background, go ahead and benefit generically, but do not apply, you know, specific fiqh rulings without verifying them from people of knowledge. Otherwise, you will walk into, uh, uh, you know, disastrous areas and, and derive very bizarre rulings. So I hope that that clarifies and that inshallah, we also understand why this question was chosen so that we do not misinterpret uh, a phrase or a, a without a pre preconditioned uh, knowledge that we need to have about the science of deriving the rulings of fiqh and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Our uh, last question for today. Our last question for today, Brother Hassan uh, from here in, in, in Dallas, he says that uh, if a wife asks for divorce and then the husband divorces her, is that a divorce, a talaq, or is that a khula? So this is the question. If the wife asks for divorce, then the husband divorces, what will it be called? Will it be called talaq? Or will it be called another thing we'll talk about now, which is khula? Now, before I begin, realize that uh, the answer that I'm gonna give is gonna be based upon generally speaking, the Hanbali Madhab and an opinion of the Shafi'i school. However, there are multiple opinions out there. And so if you are going to follow a particular Madhab, uh, then uh, ask your uh, scholar because this, these are very technical uh, issues. And I don't want to go into the controversy today. Maybe in another q and I'll go into the more details about uh, the different positions about Khula. But all the Madhabs agree that there's something called Khula. What is a Khula? A Khula is when uh, the wife 
requests her husband to finish off the marriage and she also gives up her mahar back. So the khula' takes place. So the difference between talaq and khula' is that talaq takes place by the husband. And when the talaq is given, the, the, the gifts and the mahar are kept by the wife. So the wife keeps whatever the husband has given uh, of the marriage. So the mahar was 50,000, 20,000, whatever it was. And for whatever reason, the marriage is not working out and the husband you know, decides that this isn't working out and we just have to end. So he prays istikhara, he does his due diligence and they maybe even try counseling. They decide it's not gonna work out. So the husband gives talaq, in which case the dowry amount, the mahar, remains with the wife. And technically speaking as well, the gifts that were given over the course of the marriage, the general ruling, by the way, the general ruling is that if the husband divorces, then it is retained by the wife. Now, what if we flip it around and we say the wife is not happy for whatever reason, and the wife feels that this isn't working out. And it's not through a fault of the husband, because if it's the fault of the husband, maybe something can be done. We're talking about so by the way, there's a hadith, Khawla bint Hakim, a great, famous Sahabiya, that uh, you know she uh, married a famous Sahabi Thabit bin Qais, and she said, Ya Rasulullah, I have no complaints about you know my husband in terms of akhlaq, in terms of deen, but basically to make a long story short, she basically said, you know, I just don't find myself attracted to him. I don't find myself getting along with him on a personal level. I have no complaints about, you know, he's a good man, he takes care of me, but it's just not there. The sparks aren't there and I can't find myself, I can't imagine myself being remain married to, you know, but for the rest of my life, basically. So she's basically saying, it's my fault in the sense, I wanna end this marriage and I just, it's not working out here. So she is the one initiating the annulment of the marriage. Our Prophet wasallam said to her, will you give him back the garden he gave you? He gave her an entire garden, which is a very expensive thing. And that was the mahar. Will you give him back the mahar that he gave you? And she said, yes, I will, Ya Rasulullah. So the Prophet said, okay, then uh, the marriage is annulled. Now, this is a khula. And the khula is initiated by the wife and generally speaking, ratified by a judge or by the husband. And she gives back the entirety of the mahar or a negotiated portion of the mahar. If the husband agrees to less, that's his choice. He can say, no, okay, you can keep half and give me half back. That's his choice. It's his haq if he wants to do that. But technically, you know, he has the right to demand the entirety. He's like, look, I, everything is fine from my side. If you want to leave, you know, the marriage and I haven't done anything wrong, then, you know, the mahar I gave you, the 50,000 I gave you, well, then I should get that back. And so if she decides that, yes, indeed, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to move, continue in this manner, then, uh, and she's the one that wants to end, then she is going to ransom herself. That's why it's called khulaz, like the ransoming, like she gives her money back, saying, look, here it is, and khalas, let me just, you know, khulaz uh, uh, means to, to take away, basically. To, it's as if she, 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 she threw it back or she give, gave it back to him so that he could then or she could then walk away from the marriage. Now, this is a khula. Now, there are a number of differences between khula and talaq. And again, this is madhab based. So ask the particular madhab that you follow with the shaykh of your madhab. If you ask me, generally speaking, I, I give within the Hanbali school. Generally speaking, if I don't, then I'll tell you uh, uh, otherwise. But generally speaking, most of the stuff, the default is that I'm going to give you the humbly position. And so uh, of the differences between khula and talaq is that the khula cannot be taken back by the husband. Once the husband agrees, khalas, end of story. Uh, the annulment takes place. And so the khula is not a talaq. This is another um, key point. It is an annulment. 
or the technical term is fasq of the marriage. Therefore, if the khula' takes place, uh, the husband cannot change his mind, whereas the talaq, he can change his mind in the three months or the three menstrual cycles, he can change his mind. Once the khula' is given, the lady leaves immediately. <coughs> Excuse me. She does not need to spend uh, two, three months or one month in the husband's house, nor is the husband obliged to take care of her during this time. She simply goes to her own home or to her parents or brothers, wherever she wants, and she waits. And again, there's a big controversy how long. One position is that one month she waits, uh, one cycle, and then she's free to remarry. Another position is three months, and then she's free to remarry. But the point is that whether it's one month or three months, that the husband does not have the right to uh, return the wife because now he's given it up. He's forfeited his right because she has paid the money back. She's given his money back to him. Now he has no right over her whatsoever. This also means, according to the Hanbali school, that uh, the three talaqs that are allowed, khula' does not count as one of them. So khula' has nothing to do with those three talaqs. If they wanted to remarry after a year or two, they would have to do a new nikah. And if for whatever reason the husband decided to annul to finish the marriage and to give a talaq, that would be the first talaq. The khula' would not count as a talaq. This is the Hanbali school. The Hanafis and others have different uh, positions in this regard. So the point being, there's a number of key differences between khula' and talaq. And uh, I explained the main point is that khula' is initiated by the woman and she gives the mahar back. And talaq is initiated by the man and the woman keeps the mahar. This is the main difference here. Now, our brother Hassan says, the wife asked for divorce and the husband gave it. But there was no monetary exchange. There was no uh, point of the wife saying, I'll give you the mahar back. This is not a khula. Rather, it is a request for a talaq. And a request for a talaq is simply a request for a talaq. That's all that it is. So it is basically, a simple request. The wife has the right to say, we're not getting along, you know, uh, you know, and, and by the way, and again, I, I mean, we should always make these disclaimers, just like we prepare for marriage and think about marriage and think long and deep, should, is this person the right person for me? We pray istikhara. So too, as we plan for marriage, we should plan for divorce if we are thinking of divorce. Divorce should never be done spontaneously. Divorce should never be done on the spur of the moment. It is one of the biggest mistakes. And by the way, out of the hundreds of emails I get every single week, the largest quantity are regarding divorce. It's really sad. The largest quantity about emails that I and every single Shaykh gets, my husband did this, my wife did that, you know, this, that. It's just marital issues. This is a huge issue, and we need to really, you know, uh, uh, talk about this frankly. Divorces should never be given on impulse. You plan a divorce even more than you plan the marriage. You think about it, you talk to people, you talk to your spouse, you try to work it out. And then if after all of this, and istikhara, and istishara, and talking, it, you both decide that it is best to not remain, then you decide for the divorce. And then what type of divorce? Is it talaq, is it fasq? This is again decided. And again, as I explained, generically speaking, if the wife is dissatisfied for her own reasons, then it's going to be the khula and she should give the mahr back. And if the husband is dissatisfied for his reasons, then it is talaq and she gets to keep the uh, mahr. In this case, if the wife asks for talaq, this is not khula, this is asking for talaq. And it will only become khula if she then adds on to it, look, I'm gonna give you my mahar back. 
I want to end this marriage. Once she says, I want to give you the mahar or take whatever you want from the mahar, 50%, she negotiates basically giving back what he gave her. Okay, because obviously, you know, it should not be more. And anybody who does more than this has really fallen into the dhulm. No lady should give more than what has been given to her. This would be dhulm if the husband demanded more. But if he were to demand his amount and say, look, the mahar was 50,000. You know, I, I treated you fair and square. I don't, you know, if you don't like, you know, uh, you know me or whatever, then you want to leave the marriage. I want my, my 50,000 back. Then the wife says, okay, fine, I will give it back to you. The minute that that negotiation is done, then they annul the marriage, they finish the marriage. In fact, according to the, the fatwa from the Hanbali school, the, one of the, the positions, even if he uses the word talaq, right? But in the context of khula, and what is the context of khula? The context of khula is if she gave the money, okay? That he goes, okay, talaqtuki. Uh, he took the money, he goes talaqtuki. Even he used the word talaq, but he took the money and the context is khula. This is khula. So the main point of khula is that because the wife gave the money, she gained the freedom from her accord. And the husband has no right over her to say, hey, I changed my mind, I'm gonna take you uh, back. If there is no money involved, and she said, let's end this marriage, divorce me. And he says, okay, fine, I agree, I divorce you. This is a simple divorce based on the request of the wife. That's not khula. Requesting a divorce is a request of the divorce. It is not khula. So I hope that that is inshallah ta'ala uh, clear and Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, we have time for one more question inshallah ta'ala. It's a very simple and beautiful one that inshallah will be beneficial to uh, uh, one aspect of theology. Uh, Brother Muhammad uh, from Aberdeen, Scotland emails, mashallah, Aberdeen, Scotland, one of the northernmost city, very beautiful city. I've had the pleasure of going there once in my life. Uh, I've been to Glasgow and Edinburgh many more times, but Aberdeen up north, Brother Muhammad from Aberdeen emails and he says that he has a question about the famous hadith of the one who killed 99 people but was eventually forgiven by Allah, he says that he understands that Allah's mercy is infinite and indeed it is possible for Allah to forgive everyone. But he says, how about the justice for the 99 families and the murdered? Where is the justice? He says, I can understand Allah's forgiveness. What about the people who were murdered? How can that be understood in light of this hadith? Where is their haqq uh, for uh, the rights that were taken away from them? in light of this hadith. Now, this hadith uh, is a famous hadith is reported in Bukhari and Muslim. Our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, there used to be a man amongst the people before you who killed 99 people. And he regretted that and he wanted to repent. So he asked, who is the most knowledgeable person? So he was guided to a monk. A monk is a worshiper who doesn't have any knowledge. And he said to the monk, I have killed 99 people. Will Allah ever forgive me? And the man said, 99 people, how can Allah ever forgive you? You are doomed. So he became so angry that he killed the monk and made 100. And then he became uh, repentant again. And so he then approached a scholar and he asked the scholar, can Allah ever forgive me? And the scholar said, and who can possibly come between you and Allah's forgiveness? Of course, Allah will forgive you. But then he said to him, you are living in an evil land, go to a righteous place. And the long story short, he went to that place and on the way he died. And eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, forgave him. Now, the brother is saying, he understands the forgiveness. He does not understand the concept of justice. And the response is that, 
on the Day of Judgment, our Prophet ﷺ told us that uh, people, those types of people who have done wrong unto others and especially those who have killed because our Prophet ﷺ said that a person is going to be in a state of ease. There's always going to be hope for a person on the Day of Judgment unless he has shed the blood of somebody else. And our Prophet ﷺ said the first issue that Allah will deal with on the Day of Judgment is blood. If somebody has shed blood, that is going to be the first issue Allah deals with in the court of the Divine on the Day of Judgment and the long list of crimes, number one uh, in terms of the crimes between mankind is, you know, the, those that have killed lots of people, war criminals, whatnot, you know, mass murderers, they were going to be judged number one. And our Prophet wasallam said that on that day, dhulm uh, is going to be taken to, into account and the currency between the dhalim and the mavloom, the currency between the one who did dhulm and the one upon whom it was done will be the currency of good and bad deeds. So the one who who did dhulm will be forced to give his good deeds to the one that he did the dhulm to until he runs out of good deeds. Then bad deeds from the mavloom will be given to the one who did the dhulm until all accounts are settled. And our Prophet ﷺ mentioned the case of uh, the one who is a bankrupt person. He, he said, do you know who is the uh, bankrupt person? And they said, uh, the bankrupt person is the one who has run out of all money. And our Prophet ﷺ said, no, the bankrupt person in my, uh, uh, on the day of judgment from my ummah will be the one who comes with good deeds like mountains. Yet he also has done dhulm into many people and he has killed people and hurt people and backbited people and slandered people and stolen from people. And so on that day, the good deeds that he's done will be given to all of these other people until he runs out of all of his good deeds. He said, that is the bankrupt person. So now our brother asked the question, how do we understand this hadith? And the response is very simple. One of two ways. Number one, that the default is that the sinner who does not repent or even who repented imperfectly shall be forced to deal with the sin that he has done unto others. Because again, we're talking about the sin that was done to other people by giving his good deeds. So it is possible that Allah might have forgiven this murder. And so Allah will not punish him for what he has done. But this murder might come on the day of judgment and become bankrupt in light of the 99 or 100 claimants he has to settle. And it is possible that because of that, he might be punished. But eventually he will go to Jannah because how long will you remain for the punishments, you know, for the sins of this world? And then there is a second alternative. And that is that Allah Azza wa Jal accepts the repentance of such a person to such a level that Allah will directly recompense those upon whom dhulm was done from his account and not from the account of the one who did dhulm. So in the end, the justice will be settled in the court of Allah by the rights of the mavloom being given to that person. And now whether the one who has done dhulm will be forgiven or not, it depends on his repentance. And this gives us hope because there are people amongst us who have done dhulm unto others and those people are now gone from their lives. We don't know where they are anymore. What can we do? Well, we can make dua for them, give charity on their behalf, but we really are guilty. We're very repentant. What else can we do? 
we can turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and show our remorse and regret, make, ask Allah for forgiveness and a sincere, sincere, sincere repentance from Allah will be so powerful that on the day of judgment, such a person will even be forgiven the huquq against others, but they will not walk away empty-handed. They will walk away with rewards from Allah directly, which will be even more than what this man could have given them from his own good deeds. And so they will leave happy. And Allah Azza wa Jal, because of the repentance of the sinner, will allow the sinner to be forgiven. And this shows us that the door of mercy of Allah and the rahmah of Allah and the generosity of Allah is beyond our account. And the point of this is to make us feel a sense of optimism and hope, no matter what sin we have done, even against other people, the doors of mercy are still open. If we turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we sincerely show Allah we are guilty, we are, we, are, we are turning to Him with our good deeds, we're turning to Him with our ikhlas and sincerity, we're asking for His forgiveness. The more that we do in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more the chances are that even those uh, deeds will be forgiven, even if they're involved the rights of other people. And in fact, our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, hadith is in Bukhari, that Allah is amazed in one hadith, Allah at two people, the killer and the killed, and yet they are eating together in Jannah, they're drinking together in Jannah. Each one of them in this world, their animosity and hatred was so bad that one of them killed the other. But it is possible that the one who killed was a non-Muslim who repented, he accepted Islam. So the one who was killed becomes a shaheed. The killer is forgiven because he embraced Islam. And so in, in Jannah they're together. In Jannah they're together, and in this world, the one of them killed the other, and that's each one will end up with the good deeds based upon what they have done. So all of this is to underscore that insha'Allah ta'ala, if we turn to Allah and are sincere and perfect our repentance, then the doors to Rahmah are always open. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us and to guide us and to make us of those who are in Jannah for those al-A'la. InshaAllah, I will see you in our next uh, episode next week. Jazakumullah khair. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. واذكروا الله في أيام معدودات فمن تعجل في يومين فلا إثم عليه ومن تأخر فلا إثم عليه لمن اتقى واتقوا الله واعلموا أنكم إليه تحشرون